0: this is uh, richie wexter welcome to vintage analyst archive outsider podcast very happy today to introduce you to an amazing human being and musician and maker of things uh dean is like a renaissance man dean friedman i got to know dean through his music i'm a huge fan of his music uh, he's got a, he had a few hits in like the 70s and 80s one was lucky stars which if you watch a video uh, that has Denise Mars in it, it's one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's amazing. He had a hit with a song called Lydia, with a song called Rocking Chair, and McDonald's Girl, and unfortunately McDonald's Girl got him in trouble in Europe, in England. Um, he has much, much of his following is in England. He's got a much bigger following there, and, and he for himself. Um, but he does also tours in the States, and I highly recommend you checking him out. I really like Dean. It's You know, and some of the songs are very matter-of-fact, uh, kind of list songs. There's a lot of humor and there's a lot of like, I'm a big show tune person. I hear a lot of like musical influence in Dean's work and I just think his music is just very real, authentic, and just like fun and good. And it tells stories that are very like human and stories of like, you know, stories about like your neighbor who does this thing. Like it's just very like human and matter of fact and very um, just real. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm not doing great explaining this, but. His music's amazing. And also Dean is just like this kind of renaissance man because in 86 he happened to see some VR stuff and he got so into it that he wound up getting so involved in VR that he helped develop one of the biggest systems which is the Nick Arcade prototype for that game and he created games in VR like early days uh, for Nickelodeon. So that's really cool. Dean also wrote like the Bible. It's called The Synthesizer Basics by Dean Freeman which is like the Bible of like Synthesizers. So it's, you know, not everybody can do all those things. Um, I do link, I'm going to link all this stuff in the body of the podcast, but the book is a link in there. Um, information about the video stuff is in there. And again, and also I'm going to include a, a mix I made of Dean's music, which I think is really great. So I'm very excited for you to, you know, we're always trying to like mix up people that are known that aren't as well known but i'm really hoping you will become a fan as much of a fan of, of dean's music and world that i am and did become so enjoy and i really, really can't wait to, for you to share learn about dean and for me to share this and please check out uh dean's music and i will provide links for all those okay enjoy mm-hmm. it's really great to meet you i'm sorry it took so long to happen i wanted i wanted to you know i, I mean i live in philly so getting to new york is, is 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 easy but sometimes it's not so sometimes trying to plan that like when we planned before that was our last day of school and i just couldn't like figure how to get to new york but um i i, cool. I gotta say um i was i've been a huge fan of your music i'm not even sure how i found it i i don't know if you how you feel about this category but i've found i've Put you in or i found you more in what's kind of the private press world you know what i mean by private press do you ever no i'm not sure private press is kind of like there's a few books it's basically like people who made their own records between like the 60s and the 90s and some of them are like really big collectibles okay but there's a bit of an outsiderness to it not always i'm trying to even think about people that fit into that when I've been searching those people you, you've popped up in like Spotify as like you might like this too and I, I love your music I mean Ariel is a favorite I learned how to play that on guitar it was oh. very fun One thing I picked up in your music listening to it early on well I guess I got about 10 years ago I think I maybe 10 or 12 years I, I learned about your work you seem like you have a good sense of humor
1: correct I see that as a, uh, a crucial survival attribute yes.
0: All right, so just so, just because I want to uh, reference, I want to talk about something that is kind of comic, but I don't want you to be offended because it's not meant to be that way. But I kind of went through a lot of your stuff, and I was trying to figure out like how you're described, and I loved you've got some amazing descriptions about what you do. I used to call, I used to think when I would tell people about your music, I would kind of call you the uh, uh, the a more the Jewish Billy Joel, but then I was like, wait, Billy Joel is Jewish, that doesn't, that doesn't really work anymore. And when I started researching stuff, it's like um, I realized. There's a, I'm a big show tune. I'm a big musical fan. I could tell there were... A lot of your songs, to me, felt like they were out of a musical. Especially, like, the song... Um, Is it the Deli song? Yep. That one is particularly... The duet you do, I, I'm... You have to forgive me, I've been...
1: Lucky Stars. Yeah.
0: Again, I could, you know... And I I, I don't know, there's almost humor in...
1: Are you a big fan of musicals in general? I grew up uh, on musicals. Uh, on, you know... Gershwin and uh, Bernstein and, you know, all the 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 great Broadway musicals. My mom was a singer. Uh, there was always some Broadway oh, right. show tune on the piano. Those were some of my earliest influences until I got do you, a transistor. You, radio. Do,
0: you, do you see the influence of musical theater in your work? Uh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever written or thought of written, just written an entire musical?
1: I've written three children's musicals. Okay, um, and uh, I, I have... You know, lots of thoughts about a grown-up musical, but it's easier for me to get a children's musical produced Here. on a full-blown grown-up production.
0: Yeah. So I so I put, like, when looking looking up, I mean, someone called you a man-sized version of Billy Joel, which I don't know what <laughs> What that means. Is Billy Joel not man-sized? Is Billy Joel, like, eight, you know, like, 12 inches, and we just don't know because he looks big in the recording? It's like... <laughs> What is a man size? I don't know what that means. I just thought it was funny. I put funny. you somewhere between somewhere between Harry Chapin because a lot of your stories are songs. There's a I see some Harry Chapin in there in the best way. Some Billy Joel, some Sondheim, some, and I felt like there's a Muppet thing because I'm a big Muppet fan. Maybe a little <laughs> Weird Al, and then somebody doing like doing outtakes of unknown Billy Joel songs.
1: Well, you know, uh, NME I someone, it was a big music press in the uk yeah one of the earliest reviews of of my i think first album it was talking about you know the hits that were happening in the uk at the time and it wasn't even the reviewers comment it was an insert by the editor and it was talking about my vocals and the editor inserted a a paragraph that said it it sounds like kermit the frog on (laughs) quaalus there's another review that's one of my favorites
0: like I, I, that was my favorite as but there's one when it sounds like you sound like a very stoned Kermit. Oh. So there's a stoned Kermit and a Quaalude Kermit. Apparently you, you fit both categories. I, I basically just did a bunch of different research. I went to your website and found different reviews. But at some point, I lo- you had talked about having your... At some point your walls were paper re- rejection letters from record labels. I love that. What are, Do you remember any of those that are particularly, you know, in the more ridiculousness or just that were kind of rememberable if you... I just love that. I love that you did that. I'm just curious if there's any that you remember of just being totally like ridiculous.
1: They were form letters from every major label in the States. Uh, I sent out my first demos when I was about 15 uh, on reel to reel. You know, you'd get back. Sometimes it it wasn't even typed. It was just like a mimeograph form that was filled in. (laughs) Thank you for your submission. It does not meet our needs at, at the present time. But I was very... Confident in my abilities and, and my songwriting, and it just pissed me off. And so I, I just put them on the wall just to, I guess, motivate me to persist. So this brings me to how the hell, it seems
0: odd, you know, I think some of you hear about artists that might have like a following in France, but you don't hear a lot about musicians who don't have a bigger, as big a following in England as they do in the United States. That's a kind of an odd crossover my in terms of like the norm.
1: How did you get big in England? How did that happen? Just business and politics. Something similar happened to Loud Wainwright, although he has more American success than me. He was always really big in the UK. Uh, He lived there for a good period of time. Any place my material has gotten airplay, it has been successful. And so it's that that path from release to actually getting playlisted, which is still, for the most part, determined by the The major media gatekeepers. Uh, you see playlists are just getting your,
0: radio, your songs on the radio.
1: Right, yeah. And when they get on the yeah. radio, people uh, dig it. So, uh, and, and so what happened is my first album had Burial as a hit. Second album came out. The license, the label in in, in the UK that was handling the product, uh, it was run by a guy named Dick Leahy, who knew what, who knew what he was doing. And he uh, had hits. And that was the story. And by that time the label the United States had pissed off so many people that they eventually were dropped by their distributor CBS.
0: Growing up, we used to get the Kenny Everett video show and I know you were on there. Yeah. That great. as a kid, I used to see that literally when I was like 12, 13 or maybe 14, whatever. It would be late night and love, it was very weird. It was What was it like being I don't, I don't what was like being on that show? What was that experience like?
1: Uh, he was a lovely guy funny as hell great performer and entertainer yeah smart and uh he championed my music early on which i I always appreciated uh you've probably seen the classic intro to my song rocking chair uh where he opens up a (laughs) a soda bottle upside down so it flows up uh and he uh sadly he died way too soon but so yeah it was always fun doing that initial round of media it was frustrating because I, I had this nagging sense that the people who were supposed to be in my corner in terms of running the business and management uh, were really not up to the task.
0: You'd mentioned um, that Randy Newman was influential to you, that his song evoked imagery, which I do th- and its cinematic quality, which I do think. Like to me, visualizing your songs, especially the conversational ones that feel like musicals in my head, I see them as full musicals.
1: About once a month, I get an email from someone asking if they could contribute ideas for a a musical based on my songs. And so I'm delighted that it evokes that reaction in people. Uh, It's not surprising because, again, you know, that was a lot of my early influences were all those great uh, Broadway uh, songwriters uh and I naturally incorporated that into my style along with you know a slew of other influences and my only reluctance is that it takes about you know five to six million pounds to launch a musical in the West End who knows what it costs to do it on Broadway you know I still aspire to do that uh, and I think the material can more than support it so yeah it's always encouraging and flattering to hear folks. Ask that question. I just say, look, if you got the funny, let's do it. Do you find that you write conversationally naturally
0: or not so? Because it seems like a lot of these are just, they're stories. There's like stories. I mean, they're, but they're almost told conversation. Not all
1: the time, but a general habit of mine is naturalism, I guess, is to describe a scene in granular detail. And for me, part of that uh, is to also try to evoke the way people speak. Do you take a lot of that content from your own life
0: or from friends, or do you write all all autobiographically or so much, or is it kind of whatever comes? Uh, most up?
1: of the time, I abide by that axiom, which is to write what you know. And so, a good portion of my material definitely derived from my life experiences and that of family, friends, and the world around me. Uh, you know, some of it extends, be you know, into the. For, for, way far distant world beyond me, or historically in terms of um, you know telling tales uh, and narratives. Uh, but um, and, and then every once in a while, well, ac- actually all the time, I'll make ample use of my uh, poetic license, which is a, a nice way to say I, I get to lie and make things up. But it's usually a, an element of real world truth uh, that I try to to really uh, make the root of the song, because I think that's what people react to. You had said Randy Newman was
0: an influence. Are there other musicians that you feel like you've been channeling or especially when you began or there certain musicians that you were looking up to or. You
1: know, uh, all the great singer songwriters of the era right before me, uh, people like Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, Dylan, The Beatles, James Taylor, Bernie Tapp Elton John, Carole King. Again, writing songs of, of a cinematic quality where the listener could really in, envision what, what was being relayed in that song and even put themselves inside the song. That's always my, my uh, ultimate goal is to invite the listener into that song so they become part of the song. So they become a co-conspirator. Do you visualize those Oh, yeah. Songs that's why I, 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 I have to be careful if I'm writing while I'm driving okay <laughs> but are you able to, are you really able to see go, all
0: this like well, are you able to kind of see all all the moving parts and all of this Do you kind of can you visualize in your brain to a certain extent of how these songs are working whether they're one person or two people can you is that part of your process
1: well it's not a conscious part of my process but i think reflected in in, in the the lyrics and the descriptions i mean again referencing Joni mitchell if you listen to if you analyze the lyrics of Joni Mitchell's songs, it, it always strikes me that she uses light very evocatively. And so I try to be cognizant of that. You know, McDonald's girl, in, in the first verse, he's, he's leaving softball practice on the, on the way to the McDonald's and there's the beacon of the, the golden arches lighting the way. You know, those things, for me, help bring the story alive. Do you ever
0: get inspired by film do you feel like there are maybe certain films that have your language embedded in them well,
1: i guess i have to go back and, and think of films that i have an affinity for and whether it's because it shares that sensibility i mean someone like tim burton whoever uh i forget the name of the director that did amsterdam they're a little quirky they're a little uh they're a little idiosyncratic for me real life is evoked in that idiosyncratic component, because real life is idiosyncratic. Uh, You know, it's not homogenized. You you know, you go to England, how do you
0: then get involved with like VR? It seemed like you were on the cutting edge of like VR stuff, probably in the 80s, correct? Or even maybe in the 70s? In
1: the 80s. It was because I was dropped by my label.
0: And that happened because of McDonald's Girl, right? That was that kind of... It's a complicated story, but
1: it's a lot of it is just a cliche. At that point in time, I was signed uh, to an indie label here in the state, and then I was signed to... CBS this is pre-Sony in the United Kingdom but the person Dick Lee who had signed me brought me to the label and he he left CBS a month before my album came out and so there was no advocate at the label in the UK at when the third album Robert Romeo came out uh and they uh, elected to put out McDonald's girl as the first track even though everyone said well you know what because of the BBC uh, rules against anything that uh, smacks of commercialism they're not going to play it they did it anyway it was officially banned by the BBC, and then they just lost interest in it. And again, it also had a lot to do with the fact that Dick leahy who had brought me there, uh was had lying. left right before the uh, the release. Dick was a great record guy. He went on to ha- you know have huge success with George michaels The business and politics of it. it it's as simple as that. You know, I understood. That it did
0: seem a little far, a little. Bit much that they actually, that even the American label were like, we can't use it anymore because it didn't seem related to the problem.
1: What can I tell you? The the song itself went on to become a hit just a few years later in in Norway with the blenders, Bare Naked Ladies uh, uh, did a cover of it. That was their first airplay hit in Canada. Um, And 33 years later, uh, it was licensed for a national TV and radio campaign here in the United States. Have you licensed a lot of your music to other musicians over the years? Uh, not as much as I'd like, because I never really had a, a functioning uh, publishing company. Okay. Um, my early publishing was tied up with the, the original label I signed with, uh, and they never really lifted a finger to do the job. So I get covers and I get you know sync licenses here and there and occasional films and compilation albums. Um, and there are some fun covers of my material, uh, but it wasn't until YouTube came along where the general public was exposed to my music that, that covers, you know, all over the world.
0: One of my favorite the video for um oh the video in Lucky stars is the main. I lo- I've watched that video like 30 40 times. The video the video of when you're it's you and I guess I forget her name and I wrote it down here, but I Yeah. And it's just it's just like, you know, it's just, it's over the top and it's so good and it's and it's like
1: Well, it's funny you say that because I couldn't stand it. In fact, it was so bad that that even though Lucky Stars continued going up the charts in the United Kingdom top of the Pops refused to play the video the second week because you know in terms of just conventional standards it was so lame I'm glad you say that no no I, I appreciate that and I, I love the song I'm proud of it and I acknowledge that it's one of the corniest uh duets of all time, but that's also part of its uh, enduring charm. The, the only thing is that this was right before MTV. What I was hoping to achieve on uh, on the video shoot was to do you know, through composed music video on a real set. I, I'm glad you enjoy it, uh, but there have been so many really fun cover versions of it online. On duet side, so I always delight seeing another cover version of it. Has it been a cover version of it uh, that was done by someone who cut in Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy? <laughs> I saw
0: that and I wasn't. It was done in a way that I couldn't tell if that was real or not. It looked pretty fake, but I liked it. It
1: was well done. But to answer your question, the, digressed uh, from earlier on, I was dropped by my label. I started working with uh, one of the earliest synthesizers, the Synclavier. Uh, that got me working with the Clavier Got me into synthesis. I, I authored a book. I wrote best-selling texts and consumer guides on synths. I started doing a lot of articles. Uh, so tell me and, real quick. Tell me what what about that stuff you enjoy. How did you get into that stuff? What did
0: you What was it about that stuff? And it seems like that's also a natural. I, I was joking that you're like kind of like a Brian May because he had some all oh, the science and and he does like industry art, but he has he's got a doctorate and he's 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 a. He's a uh,
1: I'm curious and I like to learn and I like to explore and I like to play and so for me working with you know some of those early really powerful uh, synthesizers was fun it was fun trying to to understand them and and, and figure out what they could do and what kind of sounds they could make the fact that it was very new to me I think uh, enabled me to express it in layman's terms in a way that it was easy for any reader to grasp because I was just trying to understand it myself. So I, I was able to explain it in ways that that made sense. And uh after the book I did a three part intro to synthesis video series, which to this day is the go to introduction 100%. to music, electronic synthesis around the world. In that time frame, did you
0: ever do a little more of like electronic music? Were you making were you more into the technology of it or were you actually using it to, did you ever make you know, weird, not weird, more avant-garde like sound. I I,
1: I did compose semi-classical piece for acoustic piano and electronic synthesizer for the DX7 for a brilliant pianist and musician, uh, Rebecca Lebrecht. That's an example of something that would be sort of a hybrid electronic music uh, acoustic uh, composition, strictly uh, instrumental. But for the most part, you know, as much as I became a synth maven uh, and wrote these best-selling books on electronic synthesis, to me they just served the the songs. So my main uh, work was still writing songs, and in terms of record production, the synthesizers uh, were just another color and uh, the color pad- palette palette yeah. of, uh, of sound that I used to make records.
0: So you had a seven. It looks like you had a 17-year. Break That's right, yeah, album.
1: between uh, the third album, Rumble Romeo, uh, and when I finally got to put out Songs for Grown Ups. Although I had been writing and doing recordings all along during that gap, uh, I never stopped being a musician, I never stopped being a songwriter. But it was finally getting an opportunity to put out that album, and, and then with the advent of the internet, it made it possible for me to reconnect with an audience of a few million folks who had purchased my records prior to that time, who uh, it was impossible to reach until the internet came along what would
0: you say you, equivalent of your it like you you were big in england what was you, is there another artist that would have been equivalent to you in the states at that time of your of your caliber you know what i mean were you like were you i don't know were you on a billy joe level were you on a randy newman like where were you at in terms of were you a pretty- uh,
1: well for that brief period of time the folks who bought my albums and went to my concerts uh in their minds i was as big as any of those folks uh, and to this day they still can't understand why i'm not playing uh coliseums and stadiums
0: to me you're a, you're an amazing musician i lo- i mean i love your music there's this whole frame of music called private press music or vanity records they'll call it you know not people that did that just were really amazing songwriters that just had their own world um, but it was a more you know people say folk music and they don't always Remember that that means music of the people. There's something very real and authentic about your songs of being just about regular people, which is why I think I like it.
1: Thank you for those kind words. I can't claim to be modest about my opinion of my work.
0: Did you see a difference in the music game or business, whether as a fan or whatever, wherever you're at with it, from the 70s to the 80s, in terms of how the game was played? You know,
1: there were so many trends that, that were evolving simultaneously. It, it went from being a very small, insular industry Uh, where a few people knew each other and called the shots, and a good number of those people were not lawyers. It evolved from that into a major multinational conglomerate run by lawyers with uh, shareholders and decisions that increasingly homogenized the music. At the same time, things like cable were and, and radio were providing varieties in terms of a multitude of genres but I was at the time compared it to the the book industry uh, and not that okay. people in the book industry are, are necessarily like more fair or moral but because it had been around longer there were better established traditions of equity uh, artists yeah. retain writers retain their copyright you know even if they're licensing it for whatever uh that doesn't happen in the music business until you know, some reversion clause came into effect. The percentages were different. The music was a wild west frontier. And then for a, a couple of decades, they were making so much money because they didn't have any competition from video games or all the kinds of multimedia that exists now that the the major labels could almost not make a mistake and they would still get buckloads of money in the door.
0: Have you always owned the, the um, publishing to your own music or do you not own No, frustratingly,
1: the first two albums were signed over to the first label that I signed to, the sound recordings and the publishing. The 1978 Copyright Act has a reversion clause where one of them reverted back to me in 2013, the other will revert back to me in 2033, uh, but that's just for the United States. So there's some improvement in terms of that concept of the intent of copyright, which is to protect the author and composer. Uh, and give them motivation yeah. and incentive to continue doing it, to be able to, to, to make a living. Uh, that intent was defeated by the nature of publishers who would buy out control and, uh, and then not pay the artists or pay them a piddling sum or like Spotify paid them one thousandth of a penny. The, the, ind- it, the industry's changed for a, a lot of different reasons. What, what hasn't changed is that they're still taking advantage of the artists to a large yeah. degree, but at the same time, I'm always heartened that despite that, despite all those challenges, despite the unanimity of the business, despite the structures yeah. and inequities, uh, there are always really talented performers, writers, uh, singer-songwriters, recording artists that find a way to get through. Well, look, one inevitable consequence of the internet and you know all the the social media that exists that is that for for all the the potential negativity and the downsides of it. it does give an opportunity and voice to so many more people to express their talents and you go through TikTok, and the reason you walk you lift your head up five hours later is because some of it is a name but but so much of it is really uh, entertaining and and creative those people never had a chance to express those things all right i want to switch to
0: how you go from music to then you know, you talked about you. You, um, I think this is your quote. In '86, you saw a demo of a powerful VR program that you then created. You did something. You licensed. Uh, I, I played the Eat a Bug clip from Nickelodeon. I, I thought it was a song, so I was like waiting for the song. But it was you design. You got hard to design a game that was part of right. the show, and you've done a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, Eat a
1: Bug was uh, included in uh, a museum exhibit. Was dedicated to the history of video games. The Franklin, at the, Frank Institute uh, yeah, or the Franklin Institute the Franklin Institute, and Eat a Bug was, uh, you know, the first VR game on national TV, and from that I started doing virtual reality games and environments for television and, and children's museums and theme parks all over the world, and did it uh, for a good period of time during the 90s, and it was great fun, it was cutting edge, it was like two decades ahead of its time, it was
0: how is is that a career you still pursue? Is do you still do work? Do you still work in that
1: world? You know, I get queries now and then, but I I do expect to do more of it in the future. These days, I go my modest way and I tour and I I put out an album every couple of years. Where do you get? Where do you live now? I know you grew up in like upstate New York. I thought right. I grew up in Paramus, but I live upstate New York, about an hour north in New York City, in Peekskill, New York. How does just real
0: quick? How does Judaism, if if any way, fit into your life or your music or your or You know, is being Jewish and is that a big part of who you are in in whatever way you want to interpret that? I don't necessarily mean religiously, I just mean in terms of a a human as a person.
1: Uh, Well, uh, musically, I certainly were influenced by all the great Jewish songwriters Uh, 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 as well as non-Jewish songwriters. But, you know, this, yeah. this is certainly a, a, a tradition you know, of Jewish songwriters. I, I was raised not particularly Orthodox at all. We were not religious. My mom would light candles. We'd go to a synagogue every once in a while. But then when I was uh, when I hit adolescence, my mom was convinced I was going to become a big drug dealer in high school. So she sent me away to yeshiva. Uh, little did she know. So I spent four years in a yeshiva, two in an all-boy Orthodox yeshiva down in Baltimore. How that? Uh, it was intense uh, and uh, on the one hand i made some good friends and and was exposed to a lot of the beautiful parts of religion on the other hand i i witnessed firsthand a lot of the hypocrisy and uh racism that, that's endemic to all
0: also a little misogynist there's a lot of misogyny
1: and uh, just a lot of prejudice Uh, so i was kicked out several times uh, for various infractions it gave me what i think is some real insight into what fundamentalism is about uh, and how fundamentalism justifies the most heinous acts whether it's you know whatever religion it is or culture yeah
0: yeah we don't need to get into that let's focus more on your career i want to get back to the r stuff tell me about how you got into that how you what was that like for you like- i had
1: gotten very involved and interested as i said earlier in uh electronic uh, synthesizers music synthesis uh and uh started doing articles for you know different publications putting out those books doing uh videos uh series and and seminars and in that context uh, was attending conferences and uh, I guess around 19, maybe 85 or 86, I witnessed a demonstration of a camera-based VR uh, where uh, the early version of what we now think of as a Kinect box or the Xbox, where you, you, okay. you're standing in the room, you see yourself on the screen and you reach up, you can interact with animated objects. And technologies derived from missile research uh, in oh, terms geez. of you know targeting uh, sites and, and on a flight path, using video cameras to do essentially object collision detection, to recognize what your target is from the video array, and then to use those coordinates to hone in on the target. That same technology enabled some of the very first uh, camera-based VR work. And so mm-hmm. I saw a demonstration of a, a commercial package that was being sold by folks up in Canada, the Vivid Group, and they were selling development kits and I bought one okay. and uh, it was fun. I was playing around with it and met some folks who were working on a, a new show in development for Nickelodeon TV. Uh, and I said, Hey, you know what, for your TV show, I can put a kid inside a video game and, uh, I arranged like, to, to do really a demo cool. with them. Uh, I, on spec, I, I, created the game, eat a bug, uh, and I brought them down, uh, to NYU, uh, where I'd set up a demo. Uh, and uh, they went for it, and then they licensed it. And that was the first VR game on TV. It was a show called Total Panic. That led to a series called Nick Arcade, programmed a dozen games for. And uh, along with that, I started doing, as I said earlier, theme parks and... You work for, you, you do, did something something for Disney. Right? bug was at Epcot Center, and I've done other stuff for Disney. That that, that, that was a, a whole other trajectory after oh. I was doing VR games. Designed a whole bunch of uh, interactive, uh, basically musical playground equipment. Or also theme parks and children's museums, family entertainment centers all over the world. Uh, so that's what I did during the 90s. I'm just curious some of your enjoyment of making music or game, you know,
0: product, you know, Music, game, whatever for children, like working with children. What is it about? Well, I,
1: I had kids, and any songwriter that has kids inevitably is going to start writing silly songs as they're changing diapers or you know giving a bath. And so I wound up with a whole bunch of silly songs and uh, started doing you know selling the demos and doing concerts and performances. Kids are a tough audience, uh, but they also have no preconceptions, and so if you're actually entertaining them, they'll be really engaged. Uh, but it takes a lot of focus. And concentration.
0: Have you done a lot of performance Have you done a lot of performances, tricky for kids, and albums, tricky for kids? Yeah, mostly
1: they they started off as demos. I never got around to to producing them as albums, but they've been successful for generations of kids uh, with apparently no ill effects.
0: <laughs> Do you find that you have a certain like persona that's a little different? in performing for children do you kind of put on a little teacher voice or do you have No, no. That? here's the difference is that uh,
1: when i'm writing kid songs or let's put it this way when i'm writing grown-up songs i always have to sort of restrain my propensity to pun and be really silly uh, but when i'm writing kid songs i have full license to to be as ridiculous and silly as i want that's the difference it seems like when you think
0: about children's musicians some of them take on a little bit of a persona a little exaggerated in there in whether it's performing or writing i'm just curious that the... you know what
1: i have to i would have to say no because there's one song that i wrote called the babysitting song uh, and originally it was on my uh cassette of uh, silly songs for kids but uh, of all the songs on the cassette it was the one that got a few complaints from parents because some kids w- would be really scared by it because oh if i was cannibal, i'd tell you what i'd do i'd chop you up with little onions and I'd fix you for a stew <laughs> And if you don't go to bed, well, heaven knows what I'll do, but I'll never babysit for you again. So some kids we were actually frightened by the song, but other kids, mostly boys but not just boys, they thought it was great. they wanted to hear it over and over again. So at some point, I thought, well, maybe i I I should take this off the kid's tape and i I, I put it on one of my grown-up albums uh, and okay. so I, I I point to that as an example that i I don't perform it any differently. Uh, whether I'm doing okay. it in front of kids or in front of grownups, I, I just get into the character. You know, performing, Okay. there is an element of acting to it, but that's the same as singing. Singing involves a kind of acting, performing, where you become the character in that song. And sometimes, you know, it could be a ballad or it could be a wacky song or a narrative historical song. Uh, Whatever is called for is the character that you assume in singing it. And you sing differently. You you, you use your voice differently uh, depending on the song, on the character, on the story being told.
0: Is there any i don't mean i don't mean this is sound negative is there any like subversion in some are you trying to kind of free some kids are you throwing some stuff in there that's a little over their heads Uh,
1: i think kids are pretty smart you don't need to talk down to them but i think they like being silly so if you're willing to, to expose that party self you know to be ridiculous they think it's hilarious they also appreciate when you're being contrarian when you're you know breaking what might appear to be conventional rules again being ridiculous are there certain,
0: are, are there one or two songs that you feel like are your silliest?
1: Am I silliest? Well, there's, there's one called Smelly Feet, which has always been popular with that set.
0: I, I tried to watch, I bought a vampire motorcycle last night. I was hoping you, it was a musical. <laughs> I was hoping you wrote that as a musical and there's going to be songs sung by vampire Mo- now, Motorcycle. Yeah, it would be a great um, musical. <laughs> that's a great idea. Probably watch it again. I just didn't have the energy to watch, watch it last night. But tell me about getting involved with. You did some TV you did something with those
1: same guys for a TV show I, and I was doing music for a hit TV series in the in the UK called Boom really fun, excellent series it's hard, hard to describe because it's nothing like the kinds of very different than America than American television at the time slower paced uh, more relaxed it was about a uh, Ken Boone he was a character rode around on a motorcycle uh getting into misadventures but the the subtext was that it was like the wild west and he was riding a, a, a steed right off into the sunset to su- save some fair maiden so they okay. wanted country okay. western music to reinforce that subtext and so I wrote that plus you know just a lot of incidental music for about uh, five seasons of the show the Editor Michael Miller and a lot of the cast of the show were involved in doing this low budget horror film. I bought a vampire motorcycle, uh, and Michael, the editor, uh, invited me to do a soundtrack. Uh, when I first read the script, I said, You're kidding, you, someone's gonna finance this that ridiculousness, <laughs> and uh, they raised the money, and uh, yeah. so it was great fun. It's hard to explain it, so you have to watch it on. I found a place to watch it. It took me about a, 35, about a half hour to see It's a challenge, it. but it is a horror cinema classic with one of the most disgusting scenes in the history of horror films, including a talking turd. And as a soundtrack composer, uh, to orchestrate that scene was one of my biggest challenges. But it's also a fun, ridiculous movie. The, the lighting's kind of dark. I think you're right, a, a musical version of a, a boat of empire motorcycle, likely to be a surefire hit. What were your two, your two biggest hits? That in uh, well, would be Lucky Stars and Lydia. And Lydia. Okay.
0: And those went to like number two, number three. Those were on the charts for a while? Lucky Stars was number three. Lydia was
1: top 40. Ariel was not a, a chart hit, but it was a turntable hit. And so when I perform it in concert okay. in, in the UK, uh, I get the same reaction as I do when I perform it here in the states where it was a, a a top 20 chart record and what is in terms of the states what is the highest you've gone on the charts for a song ariel went to 18 in cash box almost arbitrary measurement of business yeah. uh, manipulations was that is ariel based on a, a anyone in particular? Uh, Ariel was all the uh, teenage girls I had a crush on growing up in, in Paramus, New Jersey all squished together into one idealized fantasy girl.
0: What is the booboo? <laughs> I have to ask you what the boo and the, and the hunk blat. Is it described as a beach ball that has that sprouting breasts? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, during the eighties, as I was uh, designing virtual reality video games and environments uh, and experiences for museums all over the world, I had sold a system to the Eureka Children's Museum in Halifax, England, and they had okay. a corner of the museum which they wanted to dedicate to to music and sound. And they asked if I had any ideas about it, and uh, I had very specific ideas about it because most children's museum music exhibits at the time were really lame. You know, they put a okay keyboard or a drum and a sign that said, this is a keyboard, this is a drum. And it said, kid would go up, make a lot of noise uh, and be a little frustrated that he hadn't any experience on that particular instrument. So my thought was, and and this coincided with my work with synthesizers and virtual reality, because MIDI had come about and made it possible to separate form from function. You can make any sound with any trigger. Uh, So I thought, what if I build a bunch of instruments that are fun and to look at and whimsical and appealing and inviting to kids. that wa- They make them want to reach out and grab it and uh, uh, program them through MIDI and, and, and uh, samples and electronic uh, synthesized sounds in such a way that you can't make a bad sound. Uh, so it, it, yeah. it'll be all, you know, harmonious and diatonic. I mean, it'll be a measure of cacophony, but it'll be fun to play uh, and not necessarily dissonant the way uh, earlier exhibits yeah. were. So I built basically a musical playground uh, uh, for kids, and it was a huge hit in in England. And uh, following that, uh, I built them for museums all over the world. Um, You
0: ever play around with video feedback? Sure.
1: Have you listened to the lyrics of uh, Ariel? (laughs) Pulling around with the the vertical hold. But but also, yes, feedback and camera loops, yeah.
0: I don't know if you've ever heard stories, but I imagine that's opened up people's worlds to music that may not have had that opportunity before.
1: Um. Sure. Yeah, that was the the premise to is to make it fun, inviting, and appealing, uh, and uh, uh, the kids loved it. Millions of kids all over the world played on the, my boobles and honkblats and bongy de boings and jingle linga lilies and tonstones, and laser harp it's very cool it's i gotta run unfortunately because
0: i've been talking for four and a half hours great really great talking to you i'm really i feel like your background is really interesting but it's
1: been great i mean again i've been such a huge fan of your music anyway
0: all right well it was great talking to you um have you had
1: a chance to li- listen to the last album american lullaby well no it's a great album i encourage you to check it out and uh you can check out the the first three videos uh, on the t- right homepage of my website okay
0: i'm looking forward to it. but yeah i've been you know just Big huge fan big fan and I just wanna you know okay. um I appreciate your kind words. Dean you have a great day. Thanks so much for your time. I'm glad we found Okay, got to you do this. too Rich. I definitely wanted to have you in the in the mix to of the man.
1: All Take best. Care, Dina. Have Take a good
0: care. Day. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. For fans of vinyl and older music, you know, vintage records, uh, you're in a you're in, we're in a good place. We just did an episode with David Gebro, who runs this amazing deep dive podcast called Discord Graffiti, and he works with Paul Major. Anybody who's in, I feel like anybody who collects music kind of knows who Paul Major is. If they don't, they should. He's just like this master. Uh, mostly connected with like psychedelic and what's called private press music. You know what they they, they if you f- I rec- highly recommend uh, Becoming a patron of theirs and there's one dollars level, which is the Paul major Where you get to hear about all these like outsider? Um, and what they refer to as real people music. That's totally along the lines of what we're doing Uh this episode, obviously, we're getting ready to do an episode with this um, guy, Dean Freeman, who's kind of in the private press vein, in my opinion, but also did this cr- crazy book about synthesizers. We are upcoming with uh, two. We like to highlight people's pages, and I'm doing one with Dollar Country and Earful of Wax, both, like, highly know their vinyl. Um, so enjoy. Thanks so much, and please check those out, and uh, I will see you next time
1: thought in different ways
0: look around